0: Good morning, everyone. Please turn with me to Psalm 64. Hear my voice, O God, and my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers, who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking who can see them. They search out injustice, saying, we have accomplished a diligent search. For the inward mind and heart of a man are deep, but God shoots his arrows at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. Then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exalt." This is the word of the Lord.
1: I think that was, I'm really glad to be back. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm hearing. It's so good to have Philip and Nicole with us this morning and the sweet little voice filling in the blanks. We miss you guys. Yes, we miss the Rileys. Um, all right, stay focused. So one of the reasons uh, I love the Psalms is that you can't really predict where they're going to take you next. Uh, One minute you're in the deep end of personal devotion with David in Psalm 63 and the next minute you're in Psalm 64 and evil is swirling all around you. you. You might not see that coming and so it really keeps us Um, The Psalms keep us uh, on our toes. They keep us engaged in what God is doing and wants to teach us and speak to us about. And so in Psalm 64, there is this evil swirling all around. And David, as it turns out, is not simply describing the evil of his enemies. He wants God's people to learn something about the sin that lives deep inside of us deep inside of every single one of us, as verse six will show us. Evil and darkness has infected every son of Adam and daughter of Eve. Evil and darkness has infected every son of Adam and daughter of Eve, and only Jesus, the true and better Adam, can cure us from that. So if you're here today for the first time, or you're watching for the first time, and you've never really given thought to the Christian perspective on sin. you would never really thought through the Christian view of sin and evil. I wanna invite you to do that this morning. I wanna invite you to take Psalm 64 with us, uh, open it up, walk through Psalm 64 with us and think about, uh, think about why sin is so real and why we so desperately need someone to save us from our sins. So, uh, we normally would have Bibles in the pew backs uh, so you could follow along if you don't have a copy with you. We don't have those right now, but if you could, uh, if you're watching, pick up a copy of Scripture or if uh, you could look on with someone. I really want you to see from the Psalm, from the Bible itself, what it is that we understand is happening with regard to sin. So Psalm 64 is a prayer of David, right? You can see that from the very beginning, it's a prayer of David. Um, you can see that it's a prayer of justice. That's already been echoed this morning. It's a prayer of justice. David is pleading with God to bring justice in his own life. But along the way, uh, it's, really, it's really helpful. Along the way, it's also a vivid description of sin of what sin is and how sin operates. It's kind of a pathology of sin. Uh, So so I read Psalm 64 not just as a prayer for justice, but but also as a primer on sin, like an introduction to the doctrine of sin. So here are five working assumptions. I wanna give you five working assumptions that are are embedded, kind of woven into the fabric of David's prayer for justice, okay? I'll just list them for you and then we'll walk through them. Sin is social. Sin is intelligent, sin is arrogant, sin is deep within, and sin is self-defeating. Let's walk through those. Number one, sin is social. What I mean, what I mean by sin is social uh, is that people tend to gather around evil together. People tend to gather around evil together. David doesn't, you'll notice from the Psalm, David doesn't have just one enemy. Right, verse two describes a throng, it describes a group, it, it describes a gathering of evildoers, notice that, and also you probably already observed this, throughout the psalm he's referring to a group, he's speaking in the plural, uh, he's describing the group, not just he, as he or she, but as them, and so there's a really foundational obvious observation to make here, but this is groupthink at its worst okay this is this is human beings are so fundamentally social that we don't even want to sin alone we don't want to sin alone we want somebody to sin with us so proverbs 1 the father warns his son proverbs one eleven. when somebody comes to you and says hey come with us we're going to go steal and plunder come with us we're going to go steal and plunder and we'll split the profits when somebody invites you to do that because people love to sin together not just alone you be careful we want others to we want others to validate we want uh, we want others to validate our behavior we want others to validate our What's, what's, what's wrong deep down inside of us? We, we know it's wrong deep down, and yet we want others to validate this. And, and so one of the ironies of sin is that while it is social, it is incredibly and ultimately antisocial. Now think about that. Sin is actually not good for the group. It's antisocial. The group that thrives on gossip inevitably, will soon cannibalize itself. You can only resist gossiping about each other for so long. And the sin that brought them together will soon turn on them, right? You've seen this happen in your own life. So, the same thing can be said of David's enemies inside of them, there is an evil at work in his enemies, and they will soon turn on one another. And I think that's why we need to learn how to fight sin and not fight one another. That's why we need to learn how to fight sin and not fight those who we think are opposing us as if, as if the other person is the ultimate enemy. We need to learn that not only is sin social, but so is redemption. You know, redemption can be a social thing. This very song is an argument for that. Psalm 64 is a call to the godly. Listen, Psalm 64. is is a call to the godly to live righteously by faith in the Lord as part of a believing community that's learning how to pray and sing and voice their hope and faith in God. Which is why the refrain of verse 10 says, let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in Him. Let all the upright in heart, let them glory. Glory in what? Exult in what? In God, in God and His righteousness that we can begin to taste by faith. This psalm is about a group of people who are discovering, discovering how to live righteously by faith in the Lord. So, so, social, so sin is social, but, but so is redemption. Here's the second thing. Sin is intelligent. Sin, sin is really intelligent. How many signs of intelligence do you see in these first few verses? Look at the signs of intelligence. Almost every line in between verses 2 and 4, 2 through 4, almost every line emphasizes the craftiness and cunning and duplicity of his opposition. This enemy is fighting with a dirty intelligence. Look at this, look at verse two, plotting. Just take a moment and just walk through these ideas with me. Plotting and scheming, verse two. David's praying, God hide me, protect me from the secret plots of the wicked. Verse three, they wet their tongues like swords. So wet is W-H-E-T there, so it means to sharpen. It means to hone and and fine tune and sharpen an edge. They, they wet, they sharpen their tongues like swords, verse, uh, second part of verse 3, and, and they aim their words. What are their weapons? They, they've got incredibly intelligent weapons. Their words. Their weapons are sharp words designed to harm and hurt and kill. That's intelligent. Dirty, but. That's intelligent. Intelligence might seem, well, uh, drop to verse 4. There's one more that I want to observe. Look at verse 4. They ambush the blameless. What is required to have an effective ambush, right? You've got to have really good planning and really good timing. Those are, those are intelligence those are things things of intelligence at work what 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 i'm saying is sin is sin is 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 marked by a dirty intelligence now intelligence might sound like an odd way to describe it might sound like an odd way to describe sin but that is what's happening here and the reason that's what's happening let me just sneak a little theology in here for you this morning The reason this is happening is because evil never has anything good to offer on its own, as Augustine reminds us. Evil is the privation of good. Evil is the perversion of good. Evil can't bring anything good to the table. Evil is vandalism straight up. Without a beautiful wall, right, there's no place to spray paint vulgarities. So what I want you to think about this morning is that sin and evil, it's a form of vandalism. It it doesn't bring anything good to the table. And that's what's at work here in this section of the psalm. Intelligence can and should be what? A good thing. But sin takes this what could be beautiful and good thing and and it, twists it. It distorts it. It perverts it. It it vandalizes its host. That's what sin does. Sin vandalizes its host. So one of the best ways for you to learn how to fight sin, uh, one of the best ways for me to discover how to fight sin is to reclaim your intelligence, To reclaim your intelligence, to bring every thought captive into obedience to Christ. To align your intelligence with the wisdom of God and the heart of God. So this is not just a mental thing. It's not just an information game. Um, it's, it's, It's not just that you have a brain that's telling you what to do. It's way more complicated than that. In fact, your heart and your desires, that unseen part of you is always shaping your intelligence. It's always driving your intelligence. It's forming and reforming your intelligence. That's why Paul says in Romans 7, 15, I don't even understand my own actions. I don't understand my own actions. I'm gonna insert a line here or two. I've been a maturing believer for quite some time by the time I write the letter to Romans to the Romans, and I'm telling you, says the Apostle Paul, I don't even understand my own actions. The very things I know I should do, uh, the very things I know I should not do, rather, the very things I know in my mind I should not do, I still find myself wanting to do them over and over again. Why? Because I'm not just an intelligent creature. My heart is driving my intelligence. And I want my intelligence to be reclaimed by Christ. So one of the very best ways to reclaim your intelligence is to delight in God. That's why, again, David says in verse 10, Let the righteous rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult." So what David, he's not just throwing around words because he likes to say the word heart, or he likes to say the word delight. The, The psalmist is actually showing us how to experience change by faith. Delight in God, and so, One of the best ways to reclaim your intelligence is to delight in God, to delight in Him, to delight in His character, to delight in His Word, to delight in His church, to delight in His people, to delight in the mission by engaging your unbelieving friends and neighbors, reclaiming your intelligence by lining up your delight in God and Rejoicing, delighting in the Lord, taking refuge, let let your heart glory in Him, verse 10 says. Here's the third thing, Uh, the psalm teaches us that sin is arrogant, that pride or arrogance is very real, in fact, we we know this, we see this, right? So, pride or arrogance is something that we all recognize as sin and we can recognize it from an early age. It's amazing. Children observe this. We can detect it in others. We usually detect it in others long before we detect it in ourselves, right? Sin is arrogant. Pride, hubris. Hubris is the classical term uh, on the list of the seven deadly sins. The church has always recognized pride as a deep problem. Trouble. Pride is trouble. Some have even suggested that pride is the root of all sin because of the fall of Satan. So look for just okay. So just walk through the psalm with me for a minute and look at the arrogance that is uh, sort of bubbling out here. Look at the arrogance of this group. Verse four. They shoot off their accusations. They shoot off their accusations like an arrow, shooting. And and their accusations are and, and their rumors uh, without reservation. So. Verse 4, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting without fear, without restraint, without reservation. They, they Remember, words are their weapons here, so they're shooting off accusations and rumors, and you can, just, you can just sense the arrogance at work. Verse 5, they brag about the trap that they set to frame the innocent. Man, this is awesome. Look at this trap. Man, we, we've set this trap. We're proud of this trap. Look at how amazing this trap is. Verse 6, they plot injustice and they even say we have a perfect plan. We have a perfect plan. And this is the way it works. This is the way pride works. All the while they have no idea that God has them in His sights. And it'll just take one arrow And that, that is the way that pride works. You're, you're blind to what God is doing. So but I don't want to go too far, but in verse 7 you'll see. Um, but God, He sees them. He has them in His sights. And because they're so full of themselves, they cannot see that they're sitting ducks. And that, that really is... That really is a a good description of pride. We say that, right? He's full of himself, she's full of herself. That's a real common way to describe pride. That's a good way to describe pride, to be full of oneself. To be more precise, pride is kind of a mixed drink. Pride is a mixed drink. It's a a blend of self-absorption. Let me get a little more technical here for a second. Pride is a blend of self-absorption kind of mixed in with um, conceit. So it's self-absorption mixed in with an overestimation of one's worth or abilities. And so you've got this, this uh, cocktail of narcissism and conceit that just mix together real nicely. And it, it will ruin you. Let me give you a modern example that's a little bit humorous were it not so tragic, but let me just give you a model Uh, I've shared this with you before. This is a real advertisement that was in the New York Magazine, if you could hit that slide for me, Uh, in the New York Magazine back in 1992. Uh, I'll read it to you because it might be hard for some of you to see from there. But this is, a, this is an advertisement that a real person put in the New York Magazine in the personal section because she's trying to connect with someone else. And so here's what she says about herself. So she, she's written an ad about herself. Okay, Here, here's what she says. She, sto- she opens with strikingly beautiful. Got that going for me. Um, strikingly beautiful, Ivy League graduate, playful, Passionate, perceptive, elegant, bright, articulate, original in mind, unique in spirit. I possess a rare balance of beauty and depth, sophistication and earthiness, seriousness and fun. This is crazy. This is crazy. Professionally successful, perfectly capable of being self sufficient and independent, but I won't be truly content until we find each other. No way. She's never going to find contentment. Please reply with a substantial letter describing your background and who you are. Photo essential. You better believe it. Yeah, if you're going to meet strikingly beautiful, you better include your photo or you ain't going nowhere with her. I mean, it it, it is tragically funny. It really is and yet this was written in 1992 for a while now we have been teaching people you're you're the most important person in the room you need to have self-confidence you need to know yourself you need to be the best self you can be you you gotta you gotta you gotta sell yourself man and now we're surprised when this is what we get. Sin is sin is self-absorption. Sin is self-centeredness. Pride, rather. Pride is self-absorption. Pride is self-centeredness. Pride is narcissism. Pride is conceit. Like that's all the stuff. That's just just embedded in what's at work underneath the surface in the enemy here that David is describing. So again, that's why he says in verse 10, let the righteous one not rejoice. You could insert this. Don't rejoice in yourself. Rejoice in the Lord. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in Him. Let the upright rejoice glory in God, find glory in God himself. All right, here's the fourth one. Sin is deep within us, and, and this is a good time to, to make this, David is just, mas- David is a masterful poet, right? If you ever learn anything about David, remember he's a masterful songwriter, he's a masterful poet, and so this fourth observation in verse six is different than the others because what's happening as the psalm unfolds is right in the middle of his story. So David's been telling us the story of his injustice in his prayer. He's praying and asking God to bring justice, but he's been telling us the story of the injustice against him and how he's being mistreated and how the enemy is full of injustice and right in the middle of the story, he stops. Stops the story. And you're like, "What what what are you doing here? Verse 6, part 2 of verse 6. It really could be its own verse, and maybe it should be, to emphasize and pronounce the pause. For the inward mind, this is the the last part of verse 6. Notice what he says. It just stands alone. He stops voicing the injustice against him in order to pronounce a universal truth about the human condition, something that is true of every single one of us. For the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. That's the way the ESV reads. The NIV, I think, is a little more helpful. Here's how the NIV reads on this verse. Surely the human mind and heart are cunning Or the Holman Christian reads, the inner man and the heart are mysterious. And in this context, there's no question what David has in mind in the, is the mysterious complexities of how deep sin dwells within us. So that Jeremiah would say it in 17.9, right, the heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? The heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can even know his own heart so the effect of this pause is to warn us as listeners the effect of the pause is to warn the reader the effect of the pause is to warn us that the deception of the enemy that's being described in verses two through six, the deception of the enemy in verses two through six, because our, our own heartfelt tendency would be to say, oh, see, that's them. That's the enemy. That's how bad he is. Boom, boom, boom. Just go, And then just David says, stop. That enemy lives closer than you think. That enemy lives closer than you think sin is not just their problem, and David learned this the hard way, didn't he? Because there was another story that got interrupted. Nathan was telling David a story, and then he stopped. And David said, "Who are you talking about?" And David Nathan said to David, "I'm talking about you." David never forgot that. I don't think he ever forgot that. I think it lays in the background of so many of his songs. So be careful in a time and a season in our cultural moment as we live and breathe and move in traffic in our community and in our relationships be careful that you're not just settled in on verses two through four and you are clearly seeing everybody else's sin don't miss verse six there's a pause the enemy might be closer than you think And then remind yourself that the righteous one rejoices in the Lord. The righteous one is not self-righteous. The righteous one is not condemning about everybody else's sin. The righteous one is righteous by faith in the Lord. Let the righteous one delight in the Lord, not in his own self-righteousness. Just keep verse 10 as your refrain. Glory in Him. Here's the last thing. It's such a good way to close. Sin is self-defeating. That's that's a really hopeful thing, honestly. That that is a hopeful. In this stanza, David is expressing hope. Look at verses 7 and 8. Okay, so after that pause, here comes God. Verse 7. But God shoots his arrow at them. I mean, David was an amazing warrior. He doesn't say, I'm going to go draw up my string, put him right in my sights, and take him down. That's not what he's singing about. He said, but God shoots his arrow at them, and they're wounded suddenly. How? They're brought to ruin, mark this, this is the key, verse 8 has the answer, with their own tongues turning against them. Because the nature of evil and the nature of sin is that it's always self-defeating. Eventually, God will defeat them through the nature of sin and evil itself. In other words, there are built in consequences to sin. And David is learning to trust God to manage those built in consequences to sin. God will not be mocked. Do you remember this? God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. What the enemy planned to do, God sends back on them. You call it the boomerang effect of sin. It really can help you to distance yourself a little bit from, who's gonna win this? Because you almost feel like, wait, the wicked are winning. They're not going to win, and you are not going to win when you live in your own sin like that. The boomerang effect is that it will come back to hurt you and disable you and cripple you. So verse 7, their own words turn against their own tongues, verse 7, their own tongues turn against them. The same thing happens to us. We become trapped in our own lies, lying about the lies, or the critical word you offer snaps back and cuts you like the end of a whip. Or the person who gossips all the time just ends up with a really unhappy life because he or she has no friends. Why don't they have friends? Because no one trusts them with their words. Because as soon as you tell them something, it's out there. Like, there's a self-defeating nature of evil and sin. Or look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. The shame that they're planning to bring on others, right? There's a shame at work in verse 8. The shame that they're planning to bring on others will actually be turned against them. they brought to ruin. All who see them will wag their heads. The next time you have this kind of impulse inside of you to shame somebody, and it happens all the time, whether you voice it or not, we love to traffic in shaming one another. The next time you sarcastically shame someone or have an impulse to do that or look down on someone uh, or think about someone critically like that, Remember that just because you're a believer does not mean you get to bypass the natural order of judgment, the self-defeating nature of sin. Yes, you can claim ultimate judgment has been accomplished for you in Jesus, but because, ultimate, because of Jesus' ultimate accomplishment for you on the cross, that doesn't mean you get to bypass the natural order of, of the effect of sin in your life. Those two things are both true. Verse 9 really should be the disposition we look for in ourselves and in other believers. Then all of mankind will fear and speak about what God has done and ponder what he has done. We should be less concerned about pronouncing judgment on the enemy and more interested in entrusting that to God. And letting him work out some things that we have been trying to work out, but we can't. Then all of mankind will fear and say what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him, right? So verse 9 should be our disposition. Our disposition should be one of fearing God above all else. Sin is social, so we need to fight it together. Sin is intelligent, so we need to reclaim our intelligence. Sin is arrogant, so we need to repent of the pride uh, and the hubris that lives inside of us and pursue true humility. Sin is deep within us, so we should suspect ourselves first. Sin is also self-defeating so that we can learn from its natural consequences all the while rejoicing in the ultimate defeat, all the while thanking God that Jesus came to end evil before evil would end us, as one writer has said. So, I want to ask you to pray this morning, and I want want you to pray along with the song we're about to sing. And the song is not just about the people who you know who need to come to church and get right. This song is for us. And so we're going to sing it and we're going to pray. I'm going to pray for us and and then I want to invite you to sing it as, as as an expression of your own heart. And then a deep compassion growing inside of us for those who do not yet know Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord, even feeling the responsibility to preach a message on sin, knowing my own personal sin struggles and weaknesses. Lord, we want to confess right now this room is full we are your people who are full of weakness and we're still struggling and we ask you to help us not stand in judgment over other people who we see as the enemy whether it's a family member a coworker, or someone out in society or a politician or, or a congressman or whoever it might be God's sin so real. Will you please help us to think biblically? Help us to think wisely. Will you help us to live as the righteous live, by faith, by delighting in the Lord today? And as we sing, help us to sing and pray and and let this be, let this song be about us, we pray in Christ's name, amen.